we've been kind of just teaching through the the Advent season and the, the theme of the candle for the week. And, you know, we started with hope and talking about how our hope really is rooted in the future. We have a hope and understanding of what the future holds for you and I, that we can trust. We aren't just looking at the grave and, and, and questions and nothingness. No, rather, we're looking to a new heaven, a new earth that doesn't have a temple because we are continually in the presence of God. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then, um, and then we looked at faith and kind of focused on faith is how you live if you have hope. Faith is that, that regular obedience. There are times that, that faith rears its beautiful head in our lives in, in dramatic ways, and joy is like that too, as we'll, um, as we'll study today. But faith is this everyday obedience that I'm going to live in light of the hope of Christ. Amen. But we're kind of weird when it comes to joy, aren't we? I mean, our whole culture is centered around us being happy, everything being more convenient, being easier, giving us dopamine drips like crazy. And yet, even though our whole culture is like designed, we continually invent things so we might be happier and more comfortable and more entertained. Yet I think I have met very few people who identify as joyful, tired, stressed, anxious, but not very often joyful. So either we aren't very good at making ourselves joyful, we need to figure out another way, or we're, maybe we lack an understanding of what joy is or something. A Christian perspective on joy is not a whole lot easier. In fact, I wonder if you've ever had an experience, a time in your life when you're struggling to feel joy. You're just kind of down. I've shared with you before. I call this every day, right? And I wake up and go, whew, who am I? Where am I? Why is it, you know, I know it's all bad. How do I talk myself out of that? It's just how I wake up, you know? But I wonder if you've had this experience where you're, you're in a season where you're just down. You're just, you would love to have some joy, and yet joy seems so far away. And then... You read some scriptures or you read a little devotional or something, and you read that for Christians, we should all be experiencing the joy of the Lord. So now, on top of not feeling any joy, you feel guilty about not feeling any joy. So now, not only do you feel bad, but you feel guilty about feeling bad. I, I just did a survey of joy in the scriptures and it gets used a few different ways and, and let me just refer I, I you know I, I'm, I have a 40 minute sermon to preach in 25 minutes so buckle up but <laughs> but so we're not going to turn to all of these like we normally would but just this will sound familiar to you started in the psalms and in the psalms there's over and over there's a command or an encouragement to shout for joy. So joy is something you do. It's a shout. It's something you express. We're supposed to shout for joy in God, in salvation. So the motivation for joy should be our relationship with God. Our salvation should motivate shouts of joy. 
It's an expression for when we recognize that life is going well. And maybe that's the thing we could all work on is just the recognition that life is going well. You move to the Proverbs and there's some beautiful Proverbs, some, some advice, some little nuggets of truth. Even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. Isn't that a beautiful understanding that joy and grief can exist in the same heart? That these are not mutually exclusive. That you don't have to feel like, oh, I'm experiencing grief, that means I'm not experiencing joy. But rather, it's a much more human experience that joy and grief can be mixed together. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. Oh, there's a joy that's stupid. <laughs> Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense. Some people are experiencing a lot of joy over doing dumb stuff. You know, I teach 16 and 17-year-olds, and the two biggest rules in my classroom are, first of all, don't do anything to get me fired. <laughs> and second of all, don't do anything dumb. And I tell them, hey, when you're doing something, ask yourself one simple question. Is this dumb? <laughs> and if it is, do it at home. <laughs> folly is a joy to him who lacks sense but a man of understanding walks straight ahead oh man that'll preach when justice is done it is a joy to the righteous but a terror to evildoers when the justice of god when when the when the poor are oppressed when though the least of these are not cared for there's sorrow, but when a righteous man sees the poor cared for, the justice of God enacted, the least of these being fed, clothed, nurtured, cared for, there's a joy for righteous people in that. You look at the prophets, and, and joy is associated with salvation, with righteousness, with the word and the commands of God. There's joy in, in following his word. There's joy for those who are in right relationship with him. There's joy for those who are saved. Again, uh, joy is associated with action. We're told to sing for joy, dance for joy. Some in, so in some ways, we would have to admit that those are choices. Those are volitional actions. We choose. Nobody ever makes you dance for joy. You say, you know what? I'm going to make a choice here. I'm going to dance for joy. Yeah. We're Baptocostals around here. We could... We could, dance. we could dance for joy. <laughs> joy is connected to people or things. God is a stronghold of our joy. The temple brings joy. When the temple is not there, Jeremiah is ready to go. Now joy is gone forever. You turn to the Gospels. Do you remember the parable of the four soils, the, that the, 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 the heart that is good dirt, the heart that is ready to receive the word? It said, it said that, that that's a soil, that's a heart that received it with joy, that when you are hungry for the truth and open to the truth that God has for you, it is with joy that you receive the truth. Um, I don't know if very many Sundays go by without me 
without me referring to the pearl uh, of great price and the, and the treasure hidden in the field. What a beautiful vision of when you find Jesus with pure joy in your heart, you abandon everything else. You sell everything else, not because, well, I found God and he'll be mad if I don't, but rather with great joy. The Finding the kingdom of God is finding what it is you've been looking for your whole life. So joy is the natural outpouring that when you go, Eureka, I've found what I've been looking for. And it is the authority of Jesus in my life, living for his glory instead of mine. Amen. The parable of the talents, the faithful the faithful servant is welcomed into his master's joy. It's relational. Of course, there's all these clusters of joy around the, the resurrection story. Um, when, when the first um, people see the empty tomb, they run to tell others with great joy. So there's an element of like, God did something that you should have expected but didn't. Brings joy. In the upper room, Jesus teaches so that joy will, so that his joy will be in the disciples. We'll talk about this in a minute. But in some regard, joy is transferable. In the upper room, Jesus teaches that there will be sorrow, but that sorrow will be turned into joy. Paul teaches that joy is a byproduct, is fruit. These are all ringing familiar in your minds. It's a fruit of walking in step with the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy. So it's something God fills us with. May the God of hope, look at how hope and faith and joy are always connected. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So when we, are, when we understand the hope ahead, we are filled with joy. Paul is talking about joy from prisons all the time. It's his joy to write. He is, feels joyful when he gives thanks for his people. He is hoping to come to encourage them and give them joy. Joy motivates him. Joy is the end of what Paul is hoping for, and joy is why he does what he does. Something I'd like to talk about in, in depth this morning is that Paul talks about us making progress in joy, that we would grow in joy. And that's something that maybe Christians ought to think about. That joy is not something that hits you accidentally over the head when you're not expecting it, but rather joy is something you can grow in. It has something to do with maturing in Christ. James would remind us that we are to consider it joyful when we see even the trials in our life produce maturity in us. John writes to his audience so that his joy would be made complete. So in some regard, our joy is perfected or completed as we share the truth with others. So that John writes so that his joy would be complete and then also that their joy would be made complete. In our Christmas story now, in the, in the nativity story that we're telling, um, I always like it. This is, this is fine, but I like it when some kid puts like some poor shepherd way on the end of the table. That happens a lot. That, that's my favorite, but pretty gathered, pretty traditional this year. 
But in this story, it, you know, we, we talk a lot about, and maybe because it makes for good sermons, but we talk about all the difficulties around the Christmas season. Oh, Mary was this very young girl, and this was an unwed couple, and the long journey, and the, all the difficulties that come with childbirth and all of that. But this is a story with happiness all over it. Like joy is mentioned at least seven times, um, and like everybody in the story is shouting for joy at some point. The magi see the star, and they see it, and they go, this gives us great joy, right? They don't go, well, boys, saw the star, saddle up the camel. No, they go, ah, we've been waiting for the star, there's the star. At the announcement of John's birth, there's great joy when baby John, who is still inside his mom, comes in the presence of baby Jesus, who is still inside his mom, like a disco party breaks out. I don't know exactly what happens. Woo, he's jumping for joy. Why would that story get preserved in a, 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 except just to tell us how happy an occasion this was? In the Magnificent, in Mary's song, it is an outpouring of great joy. The word rejoice is at the beginning and the end of the song of Mary. At John's birth, there is joy. At the announcement to the shepherds, they are announcing great joy. And as the shepherds leave after meeting Jesus, they leave rejoicing. Shepherds just going through the streets rejoicing. You know, I'm kind of taken by how little any one of those people's lives changed for the better in earthly eyes. The shepherds, what did they do after that? They went back to being shepherds. Joseph and Mary, what did they do after that? They got married, started raising kids. Had to run to Egypt in a couple of years. Somehow ended up back in Nazareth. Folk. And yet, in the middle of their normal work and Joe lives, came great joy. So I'm not sure in all that we've come up with an exact definition of joy, but we're circling around something, and I think that's fine. I think we all have an idea of what it means to be joyful, but we're circling around in a Christian idea of what does and does not produce lasting joy. We're, we're growing a roadmap for our lives of how to be joyful. So let me ask you this question. I want you to think about it. Is joy a choice or is it a byproduct of circumstance? Is joy a choice you make or is joy a byproduct of circumstance? Now, this is one of those cheap shot pastor questions where I don't think it's either one, but still think. Because if it's a byproduct of circumstance, we are all in trouble. It's, I'm just... I mean, I'm 48. I haven't put 12 good months together yet, you know? <laughs> life, is, if, life is only going to produce so many moments that warrant real joy. So we either have to go like adrenaline junkie style and be like, I'm finding joy today, you know? I'm going to have to jump off of something tall or I'm going to have to, I don't know. Win an argument on Facebook. That'll do it. You're so dumb. Boom! Dopamine. <laughs> I 
And let's be honest, or we're going to have to find a synthetic way to experience joy, dopamine, serotonin in our lives. And I can't think of any synthetic way to do that that's not dangerous and self-destructive. <laughs> I would point you to exhibit A and say... I tell the jokes around here. <laughs> or at least um, we'd have to figure out a way to just ignore the tragic parts of life. If it's just a choice. And if, if joy, or if it's a byproduct of circumstance. But if joy is a choice, we're in almost as much trouble. When, when you are lacking joy, when there's deep sorrow even in your life, how helpful is it for someone to come to you and say, man, just look on the bright side. Why don't you just choose joy right now? If you punch them in the nose, they'll see stars. They can look on the bright side. <laughs> hey, have you prayed about it? Just have faith. Don't be sad. How helpful is that? I mean, if somebody knows you really well and they've walked the journey with you a long time, there might be some help in a sentence like that. But just, there's only so much choosing that can be done. That, of course, is no help at all. We can't, we can't just decide to not be sorrowful. And not only that, the Old Testament's full of lament. Jesus cried at, at sorrowful things. We're not supposed to ignore the sorrow in life. And yet the choices we make certainly do have something to do with how we experience joy. Isn't that right? Don't they? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and, and 18 have this, this command, this discipline built in that, um, and 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians both are, are written on the backdrop of like a lot of people are dying and what do we do about it? And in the middle of that, Paul writes, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every situation. So there is some discipline to it. It's not just, hey, choose not to be sad. At the same time, there's some discipline involved. There are choices to be made. And for that matter, in our situation, the circumstances around us have some impact too. I don't think joy is just a byproduct of our circumstances, not just a choice we make. And yet, wouldn't we say that both of those have something to do with the joy we're experiencing. So maybe it isn't great to think about joy as either a function of surroundings or as something we can just choose, but maybe joy is something we can grow in. Maybe it's a matter of maturity and time, of, of, of a life of sticking close to Jesus and watching His joy grow in us. Maybe instead of, how can I experience joy right now? The, the better question, the more profound question, we should think in terms of how can I live my life so I'm growing in the ever-expanding the ever understanding of the joy of Christ in my life. Even learning to want joy is a matter of growing. 
There's one of my favorite characters in one of my favorite books in, in C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. There's a bishop who have, who's just given himself to religion and wants to argue about everything, and he's met on, in the valley of the shadow of life, uh, this, this place between heaven and earth or between heaven and hell. Uh, it's, it's not a documentary. Um, but he's met there by somebody who is trying to, to spark a love for God in him. And, and he says, can you still even love God? And he goes, well, you know, what do we even mean by God and this culture and that culture? And he goes, can you even desire joy? Heaven is going to be a joyful thing. We should start now desiring joy that we might be fit for heaven. So let me just give you three quick ideas about growing in joy. That, that growing in joy is a matter of discipline, it's a matter of community, and it's a matter of remembering and expecting. First of all, joy, growing in joy is a matter of spiritual discipline. Psalm 121 is one of my favorite psalms. Do you know the Songs of Ascent? They are. The Songs of Ascent, maybe Christmas is the best time to read those because these are holiday music. The Songs of Ascent are written for people to sing on the road um, when they're going to the Jewish festivals, and then even to sing as they're walking the steps of the temple, all about just what God has done and, and, and the celebration of these, of these Jewish feasts. And the songs of ascent start with, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What a great picture of spiritual discipline. This, um, if, if we're thinking about this being traveling music and, and they go, okay, we're going to leave our home and we're going to walk to Jerusalem and there's going to be a party with us. We're not going to be by ourselves, but still there's going to be danger out there on the road and especially in the hills. The hills are where the trouble is. And so this person goes, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. It's a matter of where our focus is. I imagine if you look at your life, you could look at some hills coming up that would provide you plenty of opportunity for anxiety, stress, and grief. I imagine if you look around, you could find plenty of reasons to go, I can't be joyful unless that gets solved, unless this person shuts up, unless this check comes through, whatever it is. And yet, what if we had this attitude that we go, man, I could look at the hills or I could look above them. I could look to the maker of heaven and earth. We have to lift our eyes. Not just on the trouble of the hills. And I love that the Bible never tells us, so skip through the hills. You know? don't, don't just ignore all the bad parts of life. No, the Bible never encourages us to do that. The Bible encourages us to remember the maker of heaven and earth. Joy is going to be tough if we are unable to lift our eyes, if we're unable to put our focus on God. It is a mental discipline. It is something we have to train ourselves to do. Paul would tell us to capture every thought. And I think most of us, our thoughts are running around in our head uncaptured. And it's pretty hard to be people of joy unless we have, the, have thoughts of anxiety, stress, grief, whatever it is, grab it and go, I'm going to capture this thought, I'm going to put this at the foot of the cross, and I'm going to go, is God still good? Do I still have reason for joy? 
I mean, I know that there's trouble. I know that there's trials. I know maybe even I have decisions to make here. But can I be joyful even in light of this? Can I shout for joy even if everything isn't worked out? You know, I wonder if, and I'm just pulling percentages out of the air, I wonder if we have an idea of like being a good mature Christian would be like 80% of our brain or 80% of our, our you know, clock hours on our brain. 80% of the time we're focused on, on the world and everything in it. And then 20% of the time we're really focused on the Lord. Man, that would be 20%. It's a lot. It's a lot of praying. That's a lot of meditating. That's a lot of thinking about God. But don't you think if 80% of the time we're focused on the hills, we're focused on the trouble, we're focused on the state of the world, it's going to be pretty hard to produce joy in our hearts? Isn't that the point of Philippians 4? Philippians 4, 4 through 9 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Isn't that an interesting? Like, shut up, Paul. Like, what? Rejoice in the Lord always? Is that something you can just do? Yeah, it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I know how difficult this is. And I think one of the problems is we read this and we go, I can't do that. Well, maybe you can't fully today, but could you get started? Could this be a matter of joy growing in your life over time? Could you be a little more joyful in the middle of all of the trouble tomorrow than you are today? Could this be something that God trains in you? It's taste and see. I can't prove it to you. Are you willing to trust the scriptures? That you might trust that you'll get 10 years down the road, look back and go, my ever-present help in time of need. He never let me down. It goes on, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What have you learned and received and heard from me? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Verse four is instruction. Rejoice in the Lord always in good times and bad. Verse eight is the roadmap. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, focus on these things. And I would tell you that if we didn't have Christ in our lives, I don't, I've had plenty of seasons where I would look around and go, I don't think there is anything pure. I can't find a whole lot of excellence. I have a mirror. I know the mess I can make of my life, and I've met everybody I know, and I haven't met anybody perfect yet. Without the Lord, I go, is there anything commendable? I mean, I've met people that were impressive to me, but I've seen those same people let me down. But what if? If we're going to grow in joy, we kind of have to not with frivolous. I love giving the kids bubbles, and isn't it joyful? But maybe you got to be a little tougher than just blowing bubbles, too, as they grow. Maybe we have to say, even in the middle of all this, is there anything pure and commendable? Do I have anything to set my mind on that is excellent? Do I have anything to set my mind on that is above the trouble of the hills? Do I have anything to set my mind on that is just and pure and lovely? And I would say if we have Christ, then we do. And this is the roadmap to the ability to rejoice without ceasing.
to rejoice in every situation. There will always be discouragement in life, of course, but you get to choose what's more true, what's more worthy of your attention. Then, you know, Paul went on and at the end of this passage to say, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. It's not just a matter of of, of mental exercise, but it's a matter of spiritual practices too. Paul had trained them in spiritual practices for how to be a Christian. And this is what we have done, what, what, what discipleship has been for all time. Do you have to pray every day in order to be a Christian? No. Do you have to meditate on the Lord every day in order to be a Christian? Do you have to read your Bible every day to be a Christian? Do you have to go to church? Do you have to give generously? Do you have to fast? Do you have to do any of these things? No, but do you, wanna, do you want some joy in your life? Paul would say, do what you saw me do. Grow in spiritual disciplines and you'll grow in joy. My friends, grow in spiritual disciplines and you'll grow in joy. Peter put it beautifully. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Amen? And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Amen? and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Don't try to be joyful. Get to know Jesus, and let joy be the byproduct of that. Second, and I'll, I'll try to speed up. I just tell you that to try to encourage you. Um, <laughs> second, growing in joy is a matter of Jesus-centered community. It just is, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but look, Jesus and Paul both talk over and over about in their, in their friends, their joy is made complete, that, that my joy, I want it to be your joy, and my joy is perfected, it's made complete when I'm with you. Paul longs to be with believers he loves. Why do we think that we are not fit for Christian community unless we are already joyful? What a damnable lie. How many times have we let our lack of joy keep us from fellowship? I just don't feel like it today. I just don't feel like I can. I just, I'm, I'm just too bummed out. Man, it is a function of Christian community that produces joy. Joy in some mystical way, like faith, is transferable. It goes from one person to another. Not only that, but and not to get too philosophical, but there is a Trinitarian community of love and joy that created all of this. God is joyful in community in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. How would we experience joy without community? It was the fall that made us hide. Hiding, isolation, that good old Christian, phony Sunday morning mask. These are the enemies of joy. Deep, Christ-centered friendships. And these are, these are joy-producing relationships. Bonhoeffer said, I think I quoted Bonhoeffer last week. I'm going to try to do it next week too. If there's so much blessing and joy even in a single encounter of brother with brother, how inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Do you want to grow in joy? Grow in the spiritual disciplines and grow in relationship with other believers. Last, third, 
Growing in joy is a matter of remembering, of walking in faith, and of expectation. It strikes me that as we look at all of these examples of great joy, all of the, the, the joy that, that revolved around the manger scene, the nativity, it strikes me that as we look at, at those instances of joy, that there is an element of surprise in each one of them. God is doing something that couldn't be predicted, right? Hey, there's the star. We didn't know the star. Look at the star. And oh my gosh, look at all these angels. We were just tending sheep, and now we're having like, you know, Jethro Tull showed up or something. I don't know. That seemed the most angelic band I could think of. But I don't know. Um, how could I have a baby? What are you talking about? At the same time, while these events couldn't have been predicted by the people that are expressing joy, all of this joy comes to people who are faithfully waiting for God to work. There's, a, there's an expectation with all of them, and you see it in the things they say. I don't know a lot about the shepherds and the kind of lives they were living before, but you look at, you look at, at Mary, and you look at Elizabeth, and, and how Mary even talks about, oh, this will be for the rise and fall of Israel, and she is somebody who has been hanging on to the promises of the Old Testament and waiting for God to send his Messiah. You look at the Magi, well, how did they find the star? Well, they were looking for it. There was a waiting. These are probably men downstream from Daniel over in, in uh, Babylon. They, they'd heard the story. They'd read it. They're waiting. You look at Simeon, who's one of my favorite characters in the, in the Christmas story. As, as he meets Jesus, it says he was righteous and waiting for the consolation of Israel. We've talked a lot about uh, about the end times over the last couple of weeks. We've talked a lot about what awaits us and how that not only produces hope in us, but it should produce obedience. It should produce faith in us. How about we think about this too, that joy, these surprising, God surprising us with joy is going to come as we remember that God has come through in his promises before and as we are waiting for God to come through in promises again. If we get sucked in, to man, isn't the world terrible? It's pretty hard to go from there to joyful. But if, if instead we have a reality, like the true reality of the world is not that the world is bad, it's that God is good. Are you with me? And if we expect that, if we expect the goodness of God, and there's all this time where these faithful Jewish people are just going, man, you promised a Messiah. We're going to live like we understand. We're going to live like we trust that the Messiah is coming. And then it's, it's those folks who had remembered what God had done and promised. Their eyes were not only on the current circumstances, but on the rich history of God's faithfulness. I, I suppose we could be people who say, man, if God loves me, then why is the world a mess? That's always an option. But the people who experienced great joy at the first Christmas were those who remembered God's work before and anticipated that God would work again. There, was, there wasn't a lot of, hey, if God loves us, why is Rome so mean? There were those people. They didn't end up at the manger scene. They didn't end up at the empty tomb. They didn't end up chanting, crucify him. Mary's song ends with, he has helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Has God done enough in the past for you to trust him for the future that you could experience a little joy in the middle of trials now? 
Mary is not part of angry, violent Israel. She is part of faithful, expectant Israel. And I would say that the most joyful Christians are not part of angry, violent Christianity, but are rather a part of faithful, expectant church. One of the more remarkable things about the incarnation of Jesus is how little joy was sparked in Israel. This joy and happiness all over this story, but it's in such a small crowd. Shouldn't it have been that the word of the Messiah spread and it was just joy all over the place? But instead, the very next story is a mass murder. (laughs) Jesus grows up in obscurity and three years into his ministry is murdered by the people who should have worshipped him. The Messiah had arrived and most people missed it. Instead of receiving him with joy, continued to be angry and bitter. Look, Joy is a function of growth. It's something we grow in, but it is rooted in what God has done and what, is, and what God is going to do. And I've wrestled all week on with, with even kind of digging in a little bit to the chemicals in our brain that produce joy and going, is, is joy a, an occasional every once in a while thing or is joy a deep abiding thing? And I think it's this. I don't have this fully worked out, so I might come next week and go, I was wrong. But I think it's something like this, that joy is a deep abiding sense of what of, of, the, of trusting God because of what he's done in the past and what you know he will do in the future. And in the middle of that deep abiding sense of joy, every once in a while, God just surprises you and there's times of great joy. And if you want those times of great joy, you gotta be expecting it. You gotta be trusting. God has done and will do things that elicit great joy in a moment. There'll be a fresh insight. There'll be a loving friend who calls at just the right time. There'll be a new peace. You'll read the scriptures and go, oh my gosh, have you guys heard of grace? This is amazing. Have you had those experiences? There'll be freedom from sin or addiction, but I wonder if we are even expecting that. Hope is the confidence that something awesome is coming. Faith is the obedient life that hope produces. And joy is the growing reality and occasional thrill of God's goodness in our lives. So, as you celebrate Christmas with your families, would you be people who are able to look around and go, yeah, the world's a mess, has been a mess, is a mess, will be a mess. And yet, let's lift our eyes higher than the hills. Let's look at who is God and, who, and what he's done. Let's live with this deep abiding sense of peace and faith and joy that says, God's come through. When has God not come through? And then let's expect, because he's a loving father who knows how to give good gifts to his kids, seasons of thrill, of great joy.